Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Super League Triathlon podcast and this face-to-face interview series. Uh, my name is Adam Leach from Super League Triathlon and in this series I'm getting to know athletes, coaches, managers, people around the sport a lot better to hopefully try and give a bit more insight into them as as people and into the sport in general as well as what we all see out there on the race course. Bit of a departure today from, from what we've had the last few weeks. Obviously we've been speaking to a lot of athletes Today's interview is, is, is different because we've got a coach, uh, Joel Filiol, probably the most successful short course triathlon coach of all time, coach of very many world champions, Super League champions down the years. Uh, he's also worked for a vast number of federations as well as running his own uh, high performance squad separately as well, which gives him I think a really unique insight into where the sport's at and particularly in terms of high performance, where we are currently with this sort of federation driven uh, way of of running short course triathlon and whether that's the right future for it or not. Um, He's in a very unique position, I think, to be able to to make an assessment on that. But, uh, But aside from those kind of things, I also wanted to talk to him about a couple of other topics on a more personal basis because I was, I was really interested he obviously has this wide group of high performance athletes competing against each other so it's fascinating to know how he can separate them out as individuals when they train as a squad the dangers of of obviously favoritism uh, and those wider group dynamics but I think also I was really interested to speak to him about his longevity in the sport uh, for an athlete you tend to have 10 or 15 years or whatever it is of a career and then you kind of peak and you fall off your peak and you retire and you you go on and you do something else with your life he's been in this game for a very very long time and and if anything he's taking even more burden than the athletes he's kind of counselor mentor life coach uh, whatever you want to call it because he's trying to absorb all these stresses and problems from athletes uh, himself to allow them the platform on which to train every day and then perform for success and for results. And uh, I was really interested to understand the toll, emotional toll that had taken on him and in his life, uh, moving around the world and then having all this burden to carry and, and how he's dealt with that and how he keeps going and why he keeps going. So anyway, I hope you'll find this uh, an interesting interview. Like I said, a little bit different, but I think another interesting perspective on the wider world of triathlon at the very highest level. So hope you enjoy it. Joel Filiol, thank you so much for joining us for this face-to-face podcast and uh, and YouTube for Super League Triathlon. Uh, I think it's fair to say you are, you are, or you must be very nearly the most successful short course uh, triathlon coach of all time. Um, I guess an easy or difficult kickoff question, What what is it that makes a great coach? Great coaches, uh, connecting with people, understanding people. I think, um, well, it's sort of in vogue to talk about the science and uh, the physiology, but I think connecting with who the athletes are as people and trying to understand them, uh, their motivations, uh, how to adapt to get the best out of themselves. I think that's where great coaching comes from. So I think it's more in the psychology space than it is in physiology. And, um, and I think that's where sort of the magic lies, if there is, is, is how to get the best out of each individual and uh, trying to understand them. Well, that's really interesting because, like you said, there is, is a lot. And obviously at the moment, it's been very 
uh, very much talked about in in triathlon circles because of the the Norwegian method mm. as as it's being called. Um, uh, so you're you're saying that the way that you do things is is quite is quite different to way at least that is being publicly presented. Certainly, I think that's where the success has come from. I mean, I, you know, I have to say I've been uh, had a lot of um, luck come my way and being in the right place at the right time uh, with great athletes. Um, you know, it's, it's them that's performing. It's not me. But the partnerships that we've had, I think, have been based on on those relationships. And certainly that's what keeps me coaching. That when I think of my journey over the last 20 years and, you know, where I'm at now, it's, it's because of those relationships. It's the thing that keeps me going. Uh, but even um, about, you know, the Norwegians and this this has been out there and it's been very interesting and certainly we you know I, I take a lot from what they do but I recall even an interview with Olaf recently when he talked about the relationship with them and the ups and downs that that he goes through with the athletes and I think that zeroed in on he said the, the love of the athletes and the connection you have I mean that's where I think performance comes from at, at the top level. So um, your your journey into this and, and into the sport. I mean, often uh, great coaches are either former athletes or perhaps they're people who really wanted to be an athlete and didn't quite make it, but wanted to be in the sport. Where what was your journey mm. to get to where you are? Yeah, I, I started doing Kids of Steel triathlon in Canada when I was about eleven. Uh, just a club triathlon that that the 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 Cornwall Cycle Club, where my dad was from, uh, held. And uh, I did the Kids of Steel National Championships and eventually did Junior World Champs for Canada. I wasn't a very good level, but I think at the time, happy that they had the opportunity for, you know, as, as some countries you know, narrow the focus and only the best or only medalists. Well, it wasn't that case when I was competing. So I was fortunate in that space. And uh, even one of my early connections, Barry Shepley, who was commentating for, for a long time for, for World Triathlon, was one of my first coaches. And he had a, a project called the Vision Team, which was a, a, an advanced kids uh, development project. And, and that was my introduction to sort of high performance. And I remember even at the time getting a opportunity to train with Simon Whitfield, but this is before he won gold in, in, in Sydney. Um, so we had a great environment in Canada at the time uh, learning and, and that, that was my start. So I realized early on that I wasn't going to be an elite athlete, but I could have opportunities if I put myself in the right place. And uh, in the after effects of Simon winning in Sydney, I got invited to come out to the National Training Centre in Victoria. So I, I moved across Canada, put all my stuff in a U-Haul and drove the long way from Toronto and Canada across to Victoria and uh, was an apprentice coach there. And, and that was really the start of proper coaching, real coaching, being on deck and, and seeing what Simon was doing, seeing his processes. We had Greg Bennett and Laura Reback at the time uh, who were training there and uh, a bunch of other athletes. Uh, Victoria was a hub at the time. We had Craig Walton. We had Hamish Carter come through. So fantastic learning opportunity for me. And, and that was the springboard for me after that. Yeah. And I mean, you you it's interesting because um, you obviously went in and, and perhaps we should talk about this now. But you, you've obviously worked for, I think, four four national federations now. Mm hmm. Um, What's what if your how varied have those experiences been, but across the different federations you've worked for? 
Really different, really different. You're right. I started um, Triathlon Canada. So after Athens, um, I had the opportunity to work with with Simon as a personal coach. And then that evolved as it often does in federations to become the national coach for Canada into Beijing. But it was really a kind of a shoestring kind of operation comparatively from what we'd come from. Um, And uh, we had great success there uh, in, in Beijing with Simon's silver medal. And then I had the opportunity to move over to the UK to British Triathlon. And I, th- I thought at the time they've got so much more money, so much more resources than we did in Canada. I thought well, we're not going to have any problems. But in fact, it was just a different set of circumstances mm-hmm. that looked very similar. Uh, everything was ring fenced. There was a lot of restrictions in terms of what we could do. Uh, so it, it wasn't the, the the utopia that I sort of had imagined and and and. Uh, in fact, that's the experience I've had across different countries. There's similar versions of the same problems. And probably as the sport has grown as an Olympic sport and there's more funding, there's more strings attached, uh, there's more bureaucracy, there's more politics. It's very easy for uh, federations to get distracted from what actually drives performance, which is athletes and coaches in a training environment, well supported, you know, keeping that simple. That's where performance comes from. But it's, it's so easy to get distracted and things become more complicated than it needs to be. Uh, more hoops to jump through, um, you know, different things that are not really about performance. And I've tried to hone in that over time, but but certainly with uh, Canada, GB, Italy, and then Australia, it, it, they have different versions of the same problems. And, um, and those are really universal. And I found that in my squad coaching, you know, working with athletes from all different countries, you know, maybe a dozen different countries over, over the, the last decade of the JFT squad. Uh, there's there's all kinds of similar challenges, and, and I don't think there's any one organization that that's got it down. I think there are pockets of excellence, and probably that's what we tried to do with the the independent squad is is really create some distance from that, where our only focus is on performance, and we try to keep it simple. We try to focus on what we can control, but um, but indeed these athletes are coming from all different environments, and and there's not a perfect one out there. What, what, what are the problems that you've identified then? What are these similar problems that you think if it, you can hone in on them? What mm. the, the and, and are they kind of, are they sort of, are they holding back athletes from, from reaching their absolute peak? Mm. I mean, ultimately it comes back to the right athlete with the right coach in the right environment, which sounds simple, but it's actually hard to, to execute on. And I think that's where squads like mine have become sort of more popular as an option, that delivering something that individual countries struggle to do or can't do. Um, by nature, we, we would be limited in you know, the number of athletes from any one country. And when, when, we've, when we've had more than one, it sometimes created some friction. So we do have that that uh, advantage, I suppose, is is you can be the only French athlete or the only US athlete and and that gives some priority. But we I, I think the where it comes back to where we started is the complexification of sport over time, you know, the feeling that you've got to do things in a certain way. um, That's often how internally countries sort of look at things. There's like a checklist of things we must do. We must have psych, we must have SNC, we must have nutritionist. And whether or not those people are the right people you know, it's who's available. And so it's the this institutionalization of Olympic sport, which has created this sort of heaviness to your daily environment. And and often I've found, you know, it, it's it almost become a burden to performance. There's there's too many people involved, too many different opinions, too many different ideas. And when I think of 
where we've got things right or wrong is making the decisions on the daily basis. And you need to be really embedded in the environment. And ultimately that's the athlete and coach. And, or maybe when we had a physio that was embedded, that that was our core team and that worked and we could really communicate, share information in a tight, efficient way. And the bigger these organizations get, the harder it is to do that. And it's very easily lost. I, I, there's an interesting dynamic here because the, the way you talk about um, how a federation's set up in terms of delivering high performance and an individual squad is, is obviously very different. There's an interesting dynamic you've already explained there. What, I, I, it, may, it makes me confused as to how you're, you've been kind of doing both. Mm. You've been working for a federation whilst also running this incredibly successful squad. And yet they, they sort of feel diametrically opposed in some way mm. from, from the principles you're talking about. So how, how have you found that and how have you balanced that? Mm. And um, what has motivated you to want to try and do both at the same time? Yeah, you're, you're right. It's an, it's an interesting point. And I suppose the, the squad, the JFT crew squad has primarily operated independently of when I've been involved in a federation. So when I was involved in Italy or more recently Australia. And it it's now grown to the point where it's self-sustaining. We've got good support. But it is interesting how it's been sort of isolated in a sense from the institutional side of mm. that, that we experience. And I think in Italy, we're able to do a really good job with that because the role that I had as Olympic performance director there, we could control the the complexification. We kept it simple on purpose. And, and so there was a really good synergy there. We had Italian athletes could join if they wanted to. If they didn't, that was fine. But but there was a synergy. Uh, in other places, it hasn't worked quite as well. But And it's always interesting to me that, you know, my, the roles that I've been involved with, it's very hard for people that are in the institutions that the, you know, the Australian Institute of Sport or the English Institute of Sport, or now they've changed to UK Sport Institute, but it's very hard for them to think outside the box, you know, of, of what, what that is all about. And, um, you know, I've always been about what's sustainable for us. What can we deliver on with excellence? Um, what is not dependent on this external resource, you know, private squad, it's, it's, we, it's really up to us what we're going to invest in. So often we've invested in physio or massage or something to, to help maintain the athlete's health. And if we wanted to invest more in physiology or nutrition or like we did bike skills in the past with an expert in that space, we could do that and we would all contribute to it. And then if it worked, great. And if it didn't, we would, we would bin it and move on. Whereas it's very hard to do that in an institutional environment. There's a lot of uh, sunk cost with, with all of that um, structure with the complexity, with salaries of people you're dealing with, you know, time off and leave and all the all this kind of stuff that is not really about performance. And it's not to say that it can't help, but it does add a layer of complexity that that is is at a distance from what's actually happening with the athlete and um, being able to make quick decisions to process information and and ultimately do the right thing for the athlete it is it is a bit heavy and 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 that contrast between having all these resources you know again you think what would it be like if we have millions of dollars of investment would it would it impact the the athletes as much and it's not as much as we think that's my, my experience <laughs> the main thing i think is what's been challenging for me the last couple of years which has recently changed is 
being on deck, being present with the athletes, being being able to see them, to watch them, how they're doing, being able to pay attention and then uh, process all that to make the best decisions. So so my, kind of my own presence being being physically in the field, um, that's something that you can't you can't buy necessarily. I mean, and that that's where I've sort of in, invested as as the biggest return. So if if we could just step back, what was it that motivated you to think? you know what, I'm going to branch out. I'm going to set up my own squad. Was it something just that was within you you wanted to do? Was it that there were one or two athletes that had already said to you, I'm I'm really interested and you thought, oh, working with these people might be great. I'll give that a go. What, mm. what was it that, and how was that kind of first step uh, in terms yeah. of like trying to build a squad and build success? Yeah. And uh, I guess your reputation. Yeah, there's been a couple of sliding doors moments for sure. One of them was 2003, I was working in this development job in Canada and I was brought into the office uh, one day and said, that's it, you know, and, you know, basically got got sacked. <laughs> and um, so I thought, well, what am I going to do about this? And I had stepped on some toes, so, you know, I, I'm, I think probably over time I've sort of learned and lent into myself and who I am and what my values are. And, and, um, I'm comfortable with that now, but I've definitely stepped on some toes in the past. And so what did I decide to do? I moved down the block, down the street in Victoria, we set up a new squad and, uh, and that was the, probably the start of my first squad. And ultimately that grew into Simon Whitfield joining us after Athens and then becoming the national coach. Uh, but then the, the next, probably the moment was when I thought, I came to to British Triathlon. I was head coach, and I thought oh, I'm going to go into the the home games, and it'd be great. But it wasn't a coaching role, and at that time, I really didn't feel like I got back what I needed to. It wasn't me at that moment, and I uh, didn't have the relationship with the athletes. I was really trying to figure out: Am I part of the management structure, or am I a coach and align with the athletes? And I kind of went both sides and then ultimately decided I was a coach and I needed to mm. be connected with the athletes. That's what drove me. And so I didn't continue in that job. And then after the Lund Olympics started this current squad that's basically continued since then. Um, so it's been that connection, that that relationship, that, that feeling you're in a partnership with these athletes. They've chosen to work with me. They've invested in it. It's not just given to them. So we've both got skin in the game. We both are invested in each other and, and, and that's how we find performance. Was it difficult at the start? I mean, I imagine now you've got a reputation. People go, oh, I mean, perhaps you can tell me because I don't know the <laughs> stats, how many Olympic medals your your athletes have won when you be coached, how many world titles and, and all the kind of other WTCS races, whatever, Super League races and titles, whatever it may be. A lot, I'm sure. Mm. But um, now people look at that and they're, oh, yeah, I'd, lo I'd love to see if, you know, maybe Joel mm. Filiol would coach me. Mm. To start with, I imagine... That's not how it is. Are you? I imagine athletes come to you a lot more to start with. Are you going out to them, going, do you, do you fancy working with me? And kind of what was the big breakthrough moment where that kind of dynamic yeah. sort of shifted? Mm. I did wonder when I when I left the when I chose to leave the British Triathlon job if if I hadn't if I hadn't made a mistake from a from a career point of view because I had coached Simon, he had won a brilliant silver in, in Beijing, and uh, and then I kind of gone into this management role, so I had to start over again, which I think that reinvention and uh, has been good for me. Um, I often reflected Simon did that through his career. He was a big influence on me. Um, Simon was older than I am. He, he was he's very experienced. I mean, Olympic champion in 2000. So I learned a lot from him. But this reinvention process is something I've gone through a few times. And 
And it's been really valuable to figure out what's actually important. And um, so I've done a combination of reaching out to people. Like I've sent DMs to people on Twitter in, mm -hmm. in you know, in 2012, 2013, before this was a, a thing. And some, some would take up take you up on it and some obviously know, or what, what's this, you know, international squad thing. There are, there have been um, very successful coaches like Darren Smith, like Cole Stewart. These guys invented this concept. It, it was, it wasn't me. So I really have stood on the shoulders of giants uh, uh, in terms of, of coaching, but um, yeah, just grew, grew from there. And we were fortunate to have some early success with, with that squad. Uh, Mario had his first uh, World Series podium and, and in 2013 in, in the first year. And in fact, I think he was on the World Series podium every year up until 2021 or 2019, depending how we, we think yeah. about the, the COVID break. But um, it just, it grew from there. So I think we hit the, the right time in, in the development of, of Olympic triathlon. And um, yeah, from, from there, of course, success breeds success. Yeah. You know, athletes are attracted. They see what's happening. Uh, we had Richard Murray be very successful in those years, uh, Sarah True, and then Katie came after. Um, so we were able to build on that. And, and I mean, it, it's a natural dynamic that when athletes see that other athletes see that these guys are being successful and, and living in a camp environment where it's eat, sleep, train, it's totally focused. We have no distractions. Uh, you know, they're, they were attracted to that. And, and I suppose it was, yeah, hit it at the right time. So it's perhaps lucky with the timing, but also that we had great athletes that chose to work with me. I mean, we, we can't, you know, we can't make um, champions, you know, if, 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 uh, if an athlete like Mario or Rich comes along, I mean, these are huge talents, you know, that I didn't discover them or even develop them in some cases, but was able to find the right time for them to join where we could look at what they were doing, grow from there and, and fortunate to have a bunch of success. Uh, after and uh, I think we just crossed about a hundred World Series podiums recently in, wow. in the ten years. Um, we've had an athlete on the World Series podium or the Grand Final podium every year for the last ten years. So proud of proud of that from a consistency point of view. But but also to be able to do it over time with different athletes. Mm. You know, I think we've had seven or eight different athletes win a World Series. Uh, male and female, you know, different different ages, different points in their career. So we've found something in terms of a formula that, that seems to work. I mean, it's obviously individual in the end, but I think there's a common thread there. And, and I suppose that sort of breadth over time is something that I'm probably most proud of in terms of, you know, find it, finding something that works and adapting. And it's not stayed the same. It's evolved over time. I mean, as the courses have changed, after the demands have changed, we've had to constantly update it. So it's not that we're just repeating the same things over and over those the, that last decade. But it's thinking, how, how do we not be complacent? How do we continue to grow? How do we look, learn from what others are doing? Um, maybe some things are, you know, some, some countries or some groups are doing things better than us. So what can we learn from them? Uh, but how do we sort of also keep what we know, you know, and, and be confident in what we know? It's a, it's a hard game because you can't help but be a little insecure, a little unsure, you know, can we keep winning? Can we keep, you know, is this, is what we're doing still right, you know, and, and I've often wrestled with that, um, sometimes to, to my own detriment and that 
we, if we get away from too much from the formula, if you like, or, or the principles that drive us, I've sometimes found myself walking that back and thinking, no, we're in the right space here. Uh, you know, and even now in this era of, you know, really fast running and sort of the, the super shoe era, I might say, where, you know, the, not everyone reacts the same to these carbon shoes. You know, it, it sort of leveled the playing field in one respect, but there's some responders and in general, um, the running is faster than it used to be. And so I think, how, how, do, we, how do we adapt to that? What, do we need to do something different? And um, so that's a constant process. So that's really interesting. Like you mentioned there kind of like, despite all the success, the self doubt as well. Mm -hmm. And I, I did think to myself, like, because obviously you've coached all these athletes, but there must also be some athletes where it's just not quite worked out. You've given mm -hmm. you've all given it your best and you've decided it's not, not the same. When you get that moment, despite, you might look around and go, I've got Vince Lou and he's won this and this, I've got Katie's, well, mm -hmm. you know, all your roster of success. Mm -hmm. But if an athlete sits down and says, you know what, this just isn't working for me. Mm. It's just not worked. Uh, I want to go and be coached by somebody else. I'm sure you always wish them on their way with, a, with the best of uh, best wishes, but the, is there a moment you go, ah, oh, heck, is everything I'm doing wrong? Have I failed? Am I failing everybody? Not just this athlete. Have I failed this athlete? What have I done? Is that kind of, is that just part of the game? It's part of it. I mean, you have to be invested and emotionally invested in people in order to get the most out of each other. And it hurts when that ends. And and uh, one of the early lessons is every athlete moves on. It's the the rarity is uh, as a, an athlete and coach that stick through their whole career. So you you know that that's coming. You know, even even after the success with, with Simon in Beijing, I mean, ultimately at the end of that year, he knew he had to do something different, and I wasn't going to be part of that. So. Fair enough. I mean, that's what athletes have to do. I mean, you like to think that as a coach, you can also reinvent the process. And if somebody is is stalled out or, or plateaued, that you know you've got the tools to do something different. However, yeah, those relationships. I mean, some of them break down because of different reasons, stress, or you know the results haven't come, and we've run out of patience. Uh, and other times, they just run their course. You know, and 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 I mean, part of high performance is change. Uh, that's a natural part of the process. I mean, that's often what I am is a change agent. Someone's come to me because they need to make a change. And equally, you know, with me, they may also feel like that and need to move on and do something different. And well, uh, I guess is that because because if you're if you feel like you're achieving or you're a champion, you don't change your setup. You mm. change your setup and you just say, I want to come and be coached by somebody else because mm. you feel like things aren't going right. Mm. Often I think athletes wait too long to change. Often they know they need to change, but it's hard. I mean, it's hard. it can be for a squad like ours, it can mean relocating. It can mean living in a different country. It can mean a lot more organization. It can mean more complicated to resource themselves. Uh, federations these days like to, to control as much as they can. And if an athlete chooses to lose that, leave that setup, they may need to self-fund that. And so that also is a limitation, but, but often, yeah, they, in my experience, they wait too long. Um, and you know, or in order to realize that they need to do something different. Uh, but, but ultimately, yeah, that, that's part of the process too. And, and, um, I mean, I, I tried to manage that on both sides, you know, thinking myself that we don't become complacent, but equally accepting of others when, when they're ready to make a change. How much, um, how much pressure is on some of these athletes to remain in these federation setups and not branch out, even if they kind of know deep down that mm. they should? 
it, it's different. The ones that have invested in this institutional model and invested in coaches and high performance environments, that there is a lot of pressure. They have to justify the investment in a sense, and they they want to. I mean, it's it's not a bad thing. They, you know, um, that that's what what their approach is is to manage as much as they can internally in order to leverage the institutional model you have to have athletes present in front of you so you can make an impact on their performance. So if they're gone, if they're away in another country, you can't, you can't. Some are really good with that space. Like USA triathlon has been really good over the years. It is very decentralized. They haven't done a lot internally. It's been very entrepreneurial sort of model. So that works. And others, um, we really struggle to cooperate in a way that I would, I think is best. Um, and I understand that, but I often think, is this the right thing for the athlete? You know, if, in, in order to do my best as a coach, I need to have as much information as possible in order to manage all the decisions that are connected. So if I'm kept out of some of that information decision-making, then it's harder to do my job as effectively. Um, I've also had to be at peace with that because I do understand, you know, um, that that's out of our control and I try to maintain good relationships, but I also don't want to become distracted and pulled into a space that, you know, if, if I'm not employed by the Federation, there's only so much I can do. And I tried to, my relationship is with the athlete and the loyalty and, and everything is with helping them directly. And um, so it's that balance of trying to maintain a good relationship, but not getting drawn into stuff that's beyond our control. You mentioned at the at the very top about when I asked the question about being yeah what what makes a great coach, it's sort of part coach and it's part counselor, life mentor, whatever. I guess is it just whatever the athletes need and and is it sometimes hard to give like because I imagine so, uh, the needs of every individual athlete are are um, immensely different. Some I imagine just don't just, they just want to be coached they're, and they're quite robust and there are others who perhaps need a lot more emotional support perhaps is there a, is that difficult for you to manage because partly because you have to balance between all the athletes that you've mm. got on your roster and is there also kind of a, a, a toll on you because that's that's a lot to take on as a person for anybody to take on the burden of all these people to try and free them to just focus on performance Definitely. It has a high emotional cost uh, for sure. And I mean, a lot of coaches suffer through periods of burnout um, at various times. I know I definitely have <laughs> several times. You, usually it's exiting the preseason when you've made this big investment in the winter. And, you know, for a number of years, we, we were based entirely overseas or away from home the whole winter. And then we'd kind of get to the first races and you'd feel you could definitely feel on the edge then. But um, I mean, that that's part of the part of the job. And and I suppose that, you know, it's riding the ups and downs with the athletes. But, you know, there is a sort of a risk of focusing on the ones that aren't performing. And if, if you only have so much bandwidth on any given day, uh, you know, and, and but that's sort of what I end up focused on is like, you know, they have the expression that is rarely a good day in coaching at events because as much as um, somebody may have done really well, there's always somebody that didn't quite hit it. And then you, you're focused on them. Um, so it is sometimes hard to celebrate the success uh, that even if it's somebody in the group has, although that does lift everybody, though. Um, you know, we had Vashko second in, in the Paris test event. Um, that's great for everyone. Even if somebody didn't perform, they see, okay, I trained next to Vashko the last months or years and saw him doing well. So even if it's not going quite right for me, 
I can sort of see where this can go and keep belief. Um, when that's not happening, it's very difficult. I've had races where no one has performed and that's been really tough to deal with. Um, and especially with these kind of athletes, they're so good, they're so talented that the margins of success get smaller and smaller. Um, there's definitely a period where if somebody you know wasn't on the podium, if we, if we went to a World Series race and didn't have at least one podium, that was was not so good. Um, so, you know, we did, you know, that margin gets small, you know, I mean, we're dealing with athletes that are world champions or serial winners. Um, you know, the, the opportunity for a bad, I mean, there's always things that happen. Everyone has a story in it, in any race, even, even the ones that are winning of something that happened that they had to deal with. And, you know, it's, 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 they have to, that's, I suppose, what differentiates champions from, from, from those that aren't able to do that consistently, but, but certainly ride that with the ride, the ups and downs with them. And, you know, felt a, a sort of naturally probably a fairly empathetic person. So I really feel it when people are either unhappy or frustrated or anxious, like it really transmits through me, which I think is probably some, it's an asset for me because then I, I you know, I, I can see that something's not right and maybe I can figure out how I can help, help that in that situation. But it also has a big cost too. And I mean, I've had many, many sleepless nights, you know, when if an athlete has got an injury or niggle, like, you know, it really affects me. And, you know, you feel it. It's real skin in the game with, with these guys, even though, okay, it's, it's triathlon. It's, you know, it's not life and death. But at the same time, you know, we're invested in this together. And if an athlete, you know, has an injury, has a problem, um, it, it, I can, I feel it and it affects me and, you know, want to solve it, but it's also, I can't control it directly. So, but I think it's necessary. I think if you're too cold or too distant from it. I think it's harder to have that same connection. I mean, you have to care about these people, mm. the process, you have to care about the performance. And, um, you know, I think that's where the, the top performances come from is, is again, those kind of connections. How do you, um, how do you stop a squad? Like you talk about your squad, it sounds very united. I'm fascinated by how you stop it from fracturing because Ultimately, surely, when the push comes to shove on that race day, the success of those athletes and what's going to define their careers is beating some of those people that are also their squad mm. mates. And how difficult is it for you also to kind of step away because uh, and and kind of de almost you want everybody to do well, but there's only going to be one winner. There's going to be people who are going to win, people who are going to lose, people who are going to feel good about their performance, people who are going to feel bad. And you have to kind of detach yourself because otherwise, I guess you you just be accused of favoritism of mm. some of your athletes by some of your other athletes. Mm. Definitely, I mean, it helps to separate the training process. You know, them supporting each other, having you know that that's where I think again success is is born from those the daily training, the grind in the winter and the off season. But yeah, I mean, like it reminds me of 2019 grand final in, in Lausanne, you know, it was, it was Vince was leading the series. And if Mario beat him by one place or two places, that was the, that was the difference. And, you know, even when, when Vince was ready to join, when he needed to make a change and Mario was current world champion and we had discussions about this, what, you know, how is this going to work? And ultimately the, the right personalities that could support each other while being competitive with each other on, on the race, but not in training. Because uh, we, we don't want the athletes to destroy themselves in training. You know, I think that's one of the biggest errors to try to avoid is, you know, we've got all these these top athletes together. What is the training environment like? But where our value is um, self-control, it's discipline, it's 
pace management and control. So we don't use them to, to beat up on each other in training. We're, they're not being successful because they've pushed each other to the highest levels in training. It's much more about supporting the daily process and being there, being part of the structure. On any given day, somebody's having a good day, somebody's having a bad day in training. And some days you just want to follow. You don't want to be the leader. Mm. And, and that's also valuable. I mean, for, for somebody like Mario over his career, to be able to not be the leader has been saves energy, you know, when he, when he always has to be the leader or maybe Vince now has been more the leader and it costs energy. So having a group where that can balance out, where you don't have to make all the decisions uh, helps. But on, on the field, of course, we want them to, to use their best strategies. And often our strategies are not the same uh, for, for Vince or when, when Martin was in the group before. I mean, they need to be in the front group. They certainly can run fast enough to win from a big group, but they have a strength. They've got to play to that strength. That's very different than say Yele or, or Mario or Rich when he was in the group of, well, they're coming from the second group and they need to work. And, and you know, that has to that has to play out in whatever way it's going to play out. And you're right, we have to be neutral from that. So I want, I wish that there was a possibility that everyone could be successful. Yeah, yeah. And we've had a few times where that has happened on, on a day, but of course, somebody's got to win and somebody's going to lose. And inevitably, somebody's going to be, somebody's going to be disappointed in, in some respects. But of course, it was all always easier to handle if it's from our own group you know mm. um so that you know on, on days where we maybe swept the podium which we've done a few times in a world series um even if they've had a different strategy it's easier to deal with but of course we're thinking about how do we leverage our strengths to beat the rest of the world so there's also like there's the internal competition if you like but there's the rest of the world and and really we're trying to beat them so we support each other to do that You've you've seen um, you've obviously been involved in this sport a long time. You've seen a real lots of changes, lots of evolution. Where how do you see the the, the sport at the moment? From I, I'm, I'm talking particularly at a, a, you know at a high performance elite level. Do you feel like the way it is now, the current structures around it, it's in a good place? It's in not such a good place? And and kind of how do you feel about where it's headed at the moment, or where it feels like it's headed? Mm. I think the Olympic side, to be honest, has probably stagnated a, a little bit. I mean, it, the introduction of the relay has been good in a general sense for the sport. The super sprint and the eliminator has been interesting as well. I mean, taking a little bit from the Super League side of things, the inspiration is obvious. Um, you know, in the Hamburg event this year with the, the men's and women's alternating rounds has been good. Uh, but we've also seen that maybe the finance, the business side of the sport has, has been challenging. And I think a lot of... Um, event hosts post COVID have struggled. Mm. We've lost events, yeah. uh, finances are tight everywhere and, and we're not seeing, you know, as many new events. So, you know, certainly we saw, you know, com comparisons are inevitable between, you know, PTO, Super League, Ironman and, and World Triathlon. And there's definitely, you know, you can see the pull that the Olympics still has, you know, the, the test event, very little prize money, relatively the same weekend, uh, Sing Singapore PTO with a hundred grand. and. I mean, obviously the, the Olympic pull is strong. It's the hopes and dreams of the athletes. There's a, there's a lot of sort of hidden resource there in, in terms of fun, federation funding and, and et cetera. But, you know, we are spreading ourselves thin across the sport. And, and it, I think the, I'd be interested to see where the PTO goes with the hundred the K sort of format, because it's close enough to what Olympic pathway athletes are doing that you could have the same athletes do super league, world triathlon and that PTO stuff without too much change. 
Um, obviously, you wonder about the sustainability of all, all of this, you know. Um, there's, there's definitely some opportunities, but it's also the opportunity cost if you can't do everything at the same time. And we've seen, you know, for example, the French Grand Prix die down a bit in the relevance. I mean, that used to be lots of prize money, lots of appearance fees, amazing sort of riches coming out of the French Grand Prix. And that that's pretty much died down quite a lot compared to the heydays. And uh my view of why that is, is I played a part in that in a sense of, you know, when, when our athletes are, are winning a world triathlon or super league, we, we can't race every weekend. We've got to prepare. And, and that's probably part of the evolution of the sport as well is we need periods to prepare. We need periods without travel and races in order to perform our best. We don't want to just turn up and make up the numbers. And there's only, you know, the season's already extended. If you think this year, March, you can race to the end of October, November. Uh, nobody can do that without uh, training breaks and periodization in there. And that's been ever more challenging to fit in. And, um, you know, we saw a number of athletes choose to sit out races before the Paris test event this year. And on one hand, I get it because it's for their qualification and we've done the same. On the other hand, it's a missed opportunity for the sport of some of our top athletes maybe not racing each other and uh, also missing out on, on prize money and, you know, and, and just for the joy of racing, you know, so, so. I think as the calendar has become very dense, um, diversified in a way, but you know, you wonder about sort of the dilution of important mm. events, you know, and I suppose it's one thing we've sort of seen is, you know, that the PTO and those kind of events haven't yet established themselves as, you know, historically important events. And I think it's something we're missing in triathlon. We don't necessarily have the classics, you know, I mean, maybe the closest we have is, is Hamburg, you know, as, as a real, you know, long lasting classic race, but a lot of the other ones come and go, you know, we, so it's nice to come back to the same venues again. It's nice for the athletes to be here in London. There's other events that they'll come back to and familiarity and learn the courses, but we're missing a little bit of that in, in triathlon. I think that the legacy, the history, the connection with the past, um, and, um, we want to see the athletes, the best athletes racing head to head. And, um, we're probably at a, a challenging moment in this space. Yeah. I, I, I think it's a great summary. It's really interesting to hear what you said. And I like, I, I feel it like, obviously I sit in super league most of the time and I see it and I, I, I can reflect a lot and understand what you're saying. Totally. It's, uh, and there's, there's a lot of challenges. There's a lot of opportunities. There's, I'm not saying there's money in it now that's never been in the sport, but there's plenty of money in mm. the sport at the moment for athletes to try and win prize money. Um, mm. But there's still Olympics or there's still maybe um, Kona or, there, you know, there's these big, big events that have got the history and tradition around mm. them that kind of have, have their own pull. Mm. And it, yeah, it'd be interesting to see where it's going. Can you see a time? Like, this is just something that I've been thinking myself and I, I I just I don't really know whether I know the answer to this myself but in in cricket we've seen this move to kind of the players that have almost um separated themselves from wanting to necessarily play international cricket or or mm. play test match cricket and things like that because actually there's a lot of money to be made being a franchise cricketer and they'll play short format you know games and they'll go and they'll play in in India and then they'll play in England and then they'll play in Australia and then they'll play in the Caribbean and they'll just tour around the world and they'll play as much as they can play but they're making you know colossal sums of money and and probably a lot more than the players that are at what would be considered the elite level the top of the game like the, the great you know test match players 
Can you see a situation developing in triathlon mm. where there's some athletes who go, actually, you know what? Maybe I'm better off doing doing just racing around the world, picking up a load of checks than I am trying to go through all this process to qualify for the Olympics. Or is that just is the Olympics always going to be that one thing or, or Kona for long course athletes? So just mm. it doesn't matter what mm. the financials are. It would be nice to have the opportunity to be flexible. What stops that, I think, at the moment is the barrier to entry being rankings or qualification. You know, so you have to navigate that. I mean, even now we've had discussions about athletes wanting to get into 70.3 worlds next year. What do they have to do now? And, you know, these kind of barriers. And often that's what stops them, you know, from from the the great sort of transition of, of Olympic pathway athletes to long distance has been primarily slowed down by by the barriers to entry. And uh, I, I don't know how to necessarily solve that, but looking at the, what the PTO and, and World Triathlon have put forward, you know, if there's only 16 athletes and four wild cards, you've got to commit enough to that series to get starts, but that's going to uh, limit who will take the chance to do it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's the same in, you know, maybe maybe Ironman at the moment, it's it's only really the world champs that have that same draw and, the you know, the rest. I mean, you can certainly be a... Um, you know, a professional that can have a career, you know, just doing, you know, the low profile events plus plus the world champs, but to piece together the really significant events, it's hard to cross over at the moment. Mm. And um, I suppose we're fortunate that Super League works a little differently and they're, you know, take take a chance on different athletes at different levels. But that that's the that's the hard part, you know, and looking forward to the future. How, how do we sort of eliminate some of those barriers? Because we want to see the, those stories of the best racing the best and crossing over distances. And um, Yeah, and the, the, and the broadcasters who ultimately are going to make this successful want mm. those storylines played out. And they don't want three events a year. They mm. want to see that that's what they crave. Mm. And that's the mm. difficulty, I guess, for... For if you're going to grow the sport, you need to you need those audiences, and that's what they want. They don't want to just see the athletes race seven times a year. That's mm. it's just not enough. Mm. But that <laughs> is that a barrier to high performance at the same time? It's like where's the line? I guess T totally. And, and when we've had athletes, you know, jump in a seventy point three or a PTO or a challenge race at the end of the season, for example, coming out of the Olympic um, series, you know, often they've had one or two weeks on the time trial bike, so they're not able to put the time into it. I mean, that's one of the other limits but absolutely we want to see it and not not every short distance athlete can ride a bike and properly time trial but there are a number that could be very good if they have the right opportunities and we'd, we'd love to see them go head to head and you know what great stories what great racing that would be we've got to have opportunities for that i suppose you know the, the thought with the pto wildcard is you could do that um but it, it's still restrictive looking at that and and you know you know when i help navigate because this our focus is not just on you know the olympics or, or that it's you know we're fortunate in triathlon that you can be a professional athlete and you can do differently you're not just beholden to olympic funding or one choice you know there we're, we're it's a great sport from that point of view because you can you can choose your own path um but yeah we want we want to see them have those opportunities so you know it could have advised athletes so maybe maybe you ought to give these 100k distances a choice or or commit to the the super league the whole series or you know there there are different options for different athletes so we're, we're fortunate in that sense um but yeah we want to see the best race head to head Look, Joel, it's been a, a fascinating chat. Um, I've taken up plenty of your time already, but I do want to just have one more question that's just been burning in the back of my mind where I've heard you talk about your journey. You're obviously passionate, and it might that might just be the answer to this final question. But I, I kind of think with the success you've had, the different athletes you, you've had that have come and gone, and, and 
you know, you could probably quite comfortably go and sit behind a desk now and do a do like a, you know, a, a job like perhaps like the job you described at British Triathlon. At kind of, a, I guess you could almost pick your 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 place at the right moment in time. But what is it that motivates you to still want to do this? To invest so much every day, day in day out, into into doing this, like as you called it, the grind. Because it sounds like it's not just a grind for the athletes, but it has to be by necessity, the grind for you. What is it that keeps you mm. wanting to do that? Mm. Ultimately, it's the relationships with the athletes and, and working with special people who have the opportunity to be the best in the world at something. And, and in this case, triathlon, you know, that's what drives me and that we've chosen to work together. We have this partnership. And I've certainly asked myself a lot of times, boy, I would have an easier life if I could just do this desk job. And a couple of times I've walked away from those jobs, which were relatively well-paid, relatively easy life, not too much skin in the game. You know, you don't ride the ups and downs the same as you are when you're with the athletes on the cool face. And well, if I was a normal person, that's what I would do. And, and certainly, you know, leaving the contract in Australia recently, it was the same. I mean, this, this job I could do for years years, but it wasn't really me. And, and I suppose I've had to sort of accept that. And, you know, it's maybe difficult for my family and, you know, how do, how do I figure this out? Um, but that's what drives me. I, I would much rather be with the athletes trying to figure it out together. You know, the, the puzzle, like what, what do we need to do to help them get the most out of themselves? And as long as there's athletes willing to work with me on that, that I'm, I'm good to go. That, that's what keeps me going. And, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that the athletes have chosen me to, to work with them. And hopefully that continues in the future. I, th I think I've done, you know, enough that you would think they'd be more motivated. I'm sure they will be. And there'll be different ones. You you know, the, the next cycle into LA or beyond, there'll be different people and hope to make those same kind of connections with them. And that's what gets me up in the morning and want to do it. And whether it be, you know, on the road or in hotels or away from home, but that, that ability to help people achieve their goals, their dreams, and be a part of that process in the background, but part of that process, uh, that, that's what drives me as a coach. Well, it's been a fascinating chat and great to get to know you a bit better and understand a lot more about how you're operating your athletes. We wish, Joel, we wish you all the best and your squad as well for, for Paris and beyond. Thanks very much. Thank you.